Well, next, perhaps, to George Whitfield, no 18th century figure had a greater impact upon the English-speaking world than did John Wesley. Kent Hughes wrote, quote, Had it not been for Wesley's conversion and the ensuing revival with its social impact, England would probably have undergone something similar to the French Revolution. John Wesley's coming to faith was one of the most important historical events of the Western world. Wesley was the founder of Methodism. He was one of the fathers of modern evangelicalism, and he was one of the leading voices in the Great Awakening, which swept through Britain and the American colonies in the 1730s and the 1740s. John Wesley was born in 1703 in Epworth, England. He was the 15th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley would bear 19 children in all, though nine of them would die in infancy. Samuel Wesley was the rector or the pastor of the Anglican Parish Church in Epworth. And John was an especially bright and driven young man, graduating from Oxford and becoming an elected fellow of Lincoln College at Oxford in 1726, where he served as professor of Greek and logic. In 1728, following in his father's footsteps, Wesley was ordained a priest in the Church of England. Deeply dissatisfied with the superficial faith and the frivolous lifestyles of their fellow Oxford men, many of whom were training for the clergy, John and his brother Charles formed a society for students and tutors who wanted to take a far more serious approach to the Christian life. The Wesleys advocated for a strict and rigorous method of Christianity with days filled with prayer and meditation, confession and fasting, Bible study and the reading of divinity. These Methodists, as they were derisively known around campus, were a holy club of people who were zealous for the way of God, or so they thought. One Methodist student named Benjamin Ingham kept a diary which provides a glimpse into the strict piety which the group observed. The following comes from Thomas Kidd's biography of George Whitfield. He says this, On March 1st, 1734, Ingham recorded rising at four in the morning, noting that he dressed, meditated, and prayed. At five, he meditated for another hour. Methodist meditation gave deep attention to God's holy and loving attributes, against which one's own perfections would become clearer. Then Ingham read a commentary on the New Testament for an hour, attended a prayer service, and prayed privately for 15 minutes. At 10 a.m., he witnessed the commencement service at which William IV, the Prince of Orange, was awarded a Doctor of Civil Law degree. At 2.15, he met with Charles Wesley, who worked with him on keeping an exactor diary. Ingham broke his fast finally at three in the afternoon. At five, he attended another prayer service, and at 5.30, he wrote in his diary for half an hour. He and his friends read William Law's A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life at seven and discussed it for a couple of hours. The day's last entry recorded more meditation at 9.45. The next morning, a Saturday, 
He arose at four and began his disciplines all over again. In addition to such personal disciplines, the Methodists emphasized the necessity of ministering in the prisons and among the poor and the sick. This was the kind of life that John Wesley lived for over a decade. And he believed that it made him right with God. Yet all was not well with Wesley's soul. In 1735, he was recruited by the trustees of the colony of Georgia to come in order to propagate the gospel among the colonists. Wesley confided in one of the trustees, the Oxford pastor and scholar named John Burton, that his chief motive in taking on the mission was, quote, the hope of saving my own soul. Wesley envisioned Georgia as a kind of spiritual Eden where he could preach the gospel to the heathens who were uncorrupted by the lukewarm cultural Christianity of England. However, Wesley did not yet know what the gospel was. At any rate, his mission to Georgia was an absolute disaster. Wesley was in constant conflict with the Georgian authorities. He blundered up a promising courtship with a young woman named Sophie Hopke, and he struggled against the constant danger of disease on the American frontier. By the end of 1737, having been in Georgia for less than two years, Wesley departed departed the colony to to no one's particular disappointment. One of the trustees, the Earl of Edgemont, wrote that the board of trustees was happy to see Wesley resign because, quote, he appeared to us to be a very odd mixture of a man, an enthusiast, and yet at the same time a hypocrite, wholly distasteful to the greater part of the inhabitants. Wesley's Georgia mission was a miserable failure. And he sailed home for England in disgrace and despair. According to Hughes, his mission experience taught him the wickedness and waywardness of his own heart. And upon his return to England aboard that ship, Wesley wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? But God was about to break in on Wesley's heart. While in Georgia, Wesley had met a group of Moravian missionaries. Now, the Moravians were German evangelical pietists, which were kind of like proto-charismatics. And they began to press Wesley about his knowledge of Christ and his knowledge of the gospel. When Wesley returned to England, then he set out Uh, to find a Moravian leader by the name of Peter Bowler, who helped Wesley discover that in spite of all of his discipline, in spite of all of his works, in spite of all of his rigor, he was not right with God. And that justification before God came not through works, but through faith alone. Wesley wrote that he was soon clearly convinced of unbelief, and of the want or lack of that faith whereby alone we are saved. The Moravians taught Wesley that such justifying faith was a gift. When Wesley asked them how this could be, they replied with one mouth, he said, that this faith was a gift, a free gift, and that God would surely bestow it upon every soul who earnestly and perseveringly sought it. So wrote Wesley, I resolved to seek it to the end. 
Well, finally, on the night of May 24th, 1738, it happened. What Wesley had been seeking, he found. Wesley related what occurred that night in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, when he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And the rest, as they say, is history. And the interesting thing about Wesley is that he really didn't slow down after his conversion. His life, outwardly at least, remained very much the same. Hughes writes, Wesley preached in the churches. He preached in the mines. He preached in the fields and on the streets. He preached on horseback. He even preached on his father's tombstone. John Wesley preached 42,000 sermons. He averaged 4,500 miles a year. He rode 60 to 70 miles a day and preached three sermons a day on average. When he was 83, he wrote in his diary, I am a wonder to myself. I am never tired, either with preaching, writing, or traveling. But there was a vast difference between Wesley's work's prior to that night on Aldersgate Street and his works after. Before, Wesley was working for salvation. He was trying to earn God's favor. He was trying to make himself right with God by the good things, by the, by the discipline of his life, by the, the rigor of his, of his holiness. But that was an exercise in futility leading only to despair on the one hand and spiritual pride on the other. After that night on Aldersgate Street, Wesley was working from salvation, resting upon God's free gift of justification. The justification which God freely bestows by grace through faith in Christ. And it led to joy and boundless energy for ministry. Now, I I don't hold up John Wesley as a hero for us to emulate. Wesley could be cantankerous and prideful, and he held to some theological positions that were aberrant and drove a wedge between him and the more theologically orthodox George Whitfield. There is a reason that we are not Methodists. But I do use Wesley as an illustration of the truth presented in today's text, namely that so long as one pursues justification and peace and joy as though it were through works, those things, that justification, that right standing, that peace and assurance before God will remain an elusive goal always out of reach. But when justification is received as a gift of God's free grace in Christ, then and only then 
are we made right with God and experience the peace and the joy and the assurance of the gospel. There can be no mixture of faith and works in the pursuit of justification. Faith and works are as far apart as the East is from the West. Now I happen to have Luther's commentary on Romans, and in preparing for this message, I turned to the preface which Wesley heard that fateful night on Aldersgate Street. And so knowing what you know now about the state of Wesley's heart going into that night, I want you to put yourself in his shoes and let these words from the pen of the great reformer fall upon you with the force with which they struck Wesley himself. Luther writes, Accustom yourself then to this language, and you will find that doing the works of the law and fulfilling the law are two very different things. The work of the law is everything that one does or can do towards keeping the law of his own free will or by his own powers. But since under all these works and along with them there remains in the heart a dislike for the law and the compulsion to keep it, these works are all wasted and have no value. Wesley's thinking, the two years I spent in Georgia trying to get God to love me was all futility. It was all futility because it was all tinged by selfish motivations, by works done in the strength of my own hopelessly sinful flesh. This is what Paul means in chapter 3, Luther continues, when he says, by the works of the law, no man becomes righteous before God. How shall a work please God if it proceeds from a reluctant and resisting heart? Hence it comes that faith alone makes righteous and fulfills the law. For out of Christ's merit, it brings the Spirit, and the Spirit makes the heart glad and free as the law requires that it shall be. Thus, good works come only out of faith. Faith, however, is a divine work in us. It changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. It kills the old Adam and makes altogether different men in heart and spirit and mind and powers. And it brings with it the Holy Ghost. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all His creatures. And this is the work of the Holy Ghost in faith. Hence a man is ready and glad without compulsion to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything in love and praise to God who has shown him this grace. And thus it is impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate heat from light. Those words were falling upon Wesley's heart and mind with the force of a nuclear bomb. And I would say to you that if you were to know the freedom 
and joy and forgiveness and justification that Luther knew, that Wesley came to know, then you must likewise learn to distinguish between works and faith and recognize that justification, right standing before God, comes not through works of the law, not through self-righteousness, not through self-effort, not through trying harder to be better in order to get God to like you. It comes only through faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So my prayer this morning and in the next four mornings as we march our way through Romans 4, is that God would be pleased to warm our hearts with this truth, just as he did for Wesley. Paul's purpose in Romans 4 is to demonstrate the truth which he introduced in the latter half of Romans 3, in which he explicitly stated in verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If you were to hold up Romans 3, 27 to 31, and put it side by side with Romans 4, you would see that it covers the same points. In other words, Romans 4 is the exposition of Romans 3, 27 to 31. Just look, at, look with me. Romans 3, 27, boasting is excluded. Romans 4, 1 and 2, Abraham has nothing in which to boast. 327b and 28, because no one is justified by faith, or I'm sorry, because one is justified by faith, not works of the law. Romans 4.3, because Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. Romans 3.29, circumcised and uncircumcised are united under one God through faith. Romans 4, 9-17, circumcised and uncircumcised are united as the children of Abraham through faith. So in Romans 4, we're just going to be unpacking what we learned last week. And if Paul thought that it was necessary to take 25 verses to explain what he's already taken four verses to explain, or five verses, it should clue us in that this is, this is a pretty vital component to the gospel. We need to pay very close attention to the way that Paul distinguishes faith from works and locates right standing with God in faith apart from works of the law. So in today's text, Paul was going to begin to make this case that justification, right standing with God, is and always has been by faith apart from works, by pointing to two of the most important figures in the Old Testament Scripture. First, to Abraham, Israel's most illustrious patriarch, and then to David, Israel's most illustrious king. And both the example of David, or Abraham and the testimony of David are going to establish that they were made right with God not by working for God's favor, but rather by trusting in God's promise. So let's look first at the example of Abraham, verses 1 to 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him 
as righteousness. Now, why Abraham? Why does Paul choose the example of Abraham? Why does Paul feel that he needs to deal with Abraham in establishing justification by faith alone? Well, I think there are three reasons. First, Abraham is universally recognized as the founding father of Israel. If one had to select the four most important figures in Israel's history, they would be Abraham, Moses, David, and Elijah. But if one were forced to select from those four the one figure that is supreme over them all in terms of significance, it would undoubtedly be Abraham. God made the covenant with Abraham. The rest are merely Abraham's descendants. So if Paul can prove that Abraham was justified by faith apart from works, then his argument stands. If he can't, then his argument falls into pieces. The second reason Paul deals with Abraham is because Abraham was universally thought of among the rabbis as the epitome of righteousness. He was the special friend of God. They took it for granted that Abraham was accepted of God because of his righteousness, because of his faithful obedience. For instance, in the Jewish book of Jubilees, it states that Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness throughout his life. Jubilees 23.10. Leon Morris explains what is at stake here. He says, if this view is right, i.e. that Abraham was justified by his own righteousness, then Paul is very, very wrong. But if Paul can show that Abraham was justified freely by God's grace, then the apostle will have gone a long way towards establishing his position. Well, finally, I think Paul selects Abraham because of this one verse in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 6, which is not only the, only, the, the first place in the Old Testament in which the word believe occurs, but it's also one of the few places where faith is connected to the attaining of righteousness. But Jewish tradition had a very different take on Genesis 15.6 than Paul's. They essentially interpreted Abraham's faith as faithfulness, which which meant that Abraham's faithful obedience was the grounds of his justification. It was Abraham's faithful obedience, his faithfulness, that was the reason that God accepted him. So if Paul is going to establish his doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he's got to deal with Abraham, and he's got to deal with Genesis 15.6. So after introducing the case of Abraham, whom he calls our forefather according to the flesh, Paul essentially makes his case in in two ways. First, he argues from the fact that if Abraham was justified by works, which was the common Jewish assumption, if that's true, then Abraham has something in which to boast. And for Paul, that notion is absurd. It's a non-starter. Paul immediately dismisses the thought, but not before God. 
See, Paul had such a a radically God-centered view of reality that it was inconceivable to him that a man could come into right relation with God in any other way than by sovereign, unmediated grace, which totally excludes all boasting. Look back at 327. Then what becomes of our boasting? In other words, what's the consequence of the gospel explicated in verses 21-26? No boasting. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. This concept that if if God and man are going to come together, it's going to have to be God coming to man rather than man coming to God It so permeates the Old Testament that Paul simply dismisses the notion that Abraham could have something to boast in out of hand. It couldn't be otherwise. And if Abraham cannot therefore have been justified by his works, if Abraham, the forefather, could not be justified by his works because then he would have had something to boast in, where does that leave the rest of us? Neither can we be justified by our righteousness. The second way Paul makes his argument is by dealing with Genesis 15.6. Again, one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. In fact, Paul uses Genesis 15.6 again in Galatians chapter 3 for the same purpose, namely to establish that the people of God are not those who perform the works of the law, but rather are those who hear the promise of the gospel in faith. Now, the context of this verse is God's, Genesis 15.6, the context of Genesis 15.6 is God's confirmation of the promise he first made in Genesis 12.1-3, that Abraham would become a great nation and the recipient of God's worldwide blessing. Now, in Genesis 15, God specifies that the way in which he's going to fulfill that promise is by giving Abraham a son. And that this son would bring him offspring that would outnumber the stars. Genesis 15.5 reads, And the Lord brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, And he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul would have us to look at Genesis 15 and notice that there are no works. There's no movement of Abraham of any kind except to lift his eyes up to the heaven and believe. There is only the promise of God and only Abraham's faith in that promise. And by that faith, by believing that God was going to do what God said he would do, Abraham was justified in God's sight. God credited his faith as righteousness. Now, despite the best efforts of Jewish interpreters to turn Abraham's faith into something meritorious, into a work in which Abraham could boast, a work that was in some way deserving of God's justification, the text simply will not allow it. First, the Hebrew construction with the word believe strictly means to believe to be true. It's just just believing that what God says is true. It's not a work. 
Second, the verb counted or credited is an accounting term. What Moses in Genesis 15, 6 is saying is that when Abraham believed God's promise, God took out Abraham's ledger that was covered in all of Abraham's unbelief and all of his past of pagan worship and all of his sins and all of his passing his wife off as his sister and not believing God in that matter, not trusting in God's provision. All of Abraham's sins written down on this ledger, when Abraham believed God's promise, God stamped righteous on top of it. Righteousness here clearly points to a status not to a work. Finally, to say that faith is credited to Abraham as righteousness is not the same thing as saying that faith is righteousness. Again, Leon Morris states it clearly when he says, Paul is not saying that because sinners could not produce good works necessary to merit salvation, in other words, they could not attain righteousness, that God allowed them to substitute faith as an easier option. That's not what Moses is saying. Rather, he is saying that God gives salvation freely and that faith is the means whereby we receive that gift. In other words, faith is not a work. We don't earn God's salvation by believing God's promise. Faith is not something, in other words, in which we may boast. This is why the doctrine of election is so crucial to the gospel. There will be no one in heaven who stands looking across the chasm at someone not in heaven and saying, I'm here because I believed and he didn't. Faith is a sovereign gift of God awakened in us by the power of the Holy Spirit through the effectual call. Which is why salvation remains freely and truly gracious. Faith is but the empty hands with which we receive the righteousness of Christ that justifies. If you are justified... It is because you believed God's promise. And if you believed God's promise, it's because God gave you the gift of faith. For by grace you are saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. Your faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one could boast. If you have ever boasted in your faith, you have turned your faith into a work, and you are trying to be justified by something you have done. So Paul has established his point. Abraham was not justified by works. He was not justified by obedience. He was not justified by faithfulness. God gave him a promise of grace and blessing, and Abraham believed it. Therefore, Abraham has no basis for boasting before God or man. 
Abraham cannot boast in his works. Abraham cannot boast in his faith. Abraham can only boast in his God. So Abraham was justified sola fide, by faith alone. But what about the other luminary of the Old Testament? What about David? We'll skip down to verses 6 and 8. We'll come back to 4 and 5. Where Paul says, just as, or in the same way, so he's pulling another example to prove his point. In the same way, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This comes from Psalm 32, 1 and 2, and is connected to the example of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6 by the use of the word counted. The testimony of David, however, does not just repeat the point made from the example of Abraham. It adds a couple of new dimensions to Paul's argument. Let me tell you what they are. Number one, the example of Abraham focused upon Abraham's righteousness, Abraham's works. In other words, it was universally recognized in Paul's day that Abraham was a righteous man. He was revered among the Jews for his righteousness, his faithfulness. Therefore, the point in verses 1 to 3 that Abraham's righteousness, his good works, did not justify him in God's sight, but rather that Abraham was justified by faith apart from works, was astounding news. But why does Paul feel the need to add David to the argument? Why not just stick with Abraham? In fact, Paul's going to turn immediately back to Abraham in verse 9 and follow him all the way to the end of the chapter. I think the answer has to do with the rather spectacular nature of David's sins. It's not that Abraham was sinless. It's just that the Bible doesn't highlight his failures. They're implicit at best in the narrative of Genesis. But David, David's sins were many. David's sins were monstrous. And David's sins were massive in terms of their implications and their consequences. So while the example of Abraham proved that even men at their best, men like Abraham, are not justified by their works, but rather by faith alone, the example of David proves that even men at their worst are not exempt from this blessing of justification, and that for this very same reason, because justification is by faith alone apart from works. So if Abraham's example proved that our righteousness provides no advantage in our justification, David's example proves that our sin presents no hindrance to our justification. Why? Because justification is not according to our works, either our good works or our bad works, but rather according to our faith in the works of Christ. The second reason I think Paul brings in the example of David and the question of sin is that it provides Paul with the opportunity to express the other side of the coin of justification, namely forgiveness of sins. So Abraham's example showed that we cannot be justified by our own righteousness, but rather we must receive God's justifying righteousness by faith. 
Okay, we're not made right before God by any good works that we have done, but by trusting in Christ alone. And through faith, God credits Christ. He gives, he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. David's example, on the other hand, shows that the blessing of being counted righteous, verse 6, involves the forgiveness of our lawless deeds, verse 7a, the covering of our sins, verse 7b, the non-imputation of our sin, verse 8. And all of this, which you could put under the rubric of forgiveness, is not according to our works, verse 6. In other words, justification does not come by trying to atone for your own sin. Justification does not come by, by restitution of wrongs or by reformation of life. You're not going to make yourself right with God by trying to undo all of the wrong that you have done. Sin is not atoned for by anything that we do. It is only atoned for by the blood of Christ shed on the cross in sacrifice for our sins. So like the righteousness that justifies, verse 3, even so the atonement that justifies, verses 7 and 8, are completely outside of us, performed by Christ alone, received by faith alone. So that's the example of Abraham, and that's the example of David. Now let's go back to verses 4 and 5, and let's look at the principle laid down by Paul. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is the implication, the truth, the principle that Paul draws out of the example of Abraham in verses 1 to 3 and the example of David in verses 6 and 8. The reason Abraham was justified by faith and not by works is because works and grace are antithetical. They are an either-or proposition, not a both-and. Either you are justified by works or you are justified by faith. The ground of Paul's argument is his non-negotiable theological axiom, namely that God acts graciously towards his creatures without compulsion and without necessity. In other words, God will be in no man's debt. That is not the kind of relationship that he has to his creation. God is free from debt or obligation of any kind. Therefore, everything that he does by way of his creatures is done by grace. That's the principle, the underlying principle from which Paul argues in these verses. So with that in mind, let me give you a literal translation of verses 4 and 5, which I think will help bring out the point that Paul is, is trying to make. Okay? Here's what he says in verse 4. Now to the one who works, the wage is not counted according to grace, but according to debt. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You'll notice the same word counted that was used of Abraham in verse 3 and of David in verses 6 and 8. That word ties together this entire passage. 
The question is, on what basis does God count a person righteous? Well, in in verse 4, Paul lays down the general principle. In any relationship based upon works or labor, in other words, a relationship between an employer and an employee, the the wages earned by the employee's labor are not given to him as an act of grace on the part of the employer. Rather, the labor of the employee has imposed an obligation upon the employer. When Travis's service techs come back to him and turn in their, their time cards, and, and, and Travis writes out his check to them, he's not doing them a favor. He's not acting graciously towards them. Their work has imposed upon Travis a debt. And Travis is obligated to restore to them the wages of their work or else Travis is unrighteous. That's because his relationship to those service techs is an employer-employee relationship. That's not the kind of relationship that God has with man. The thought of man working for God and thereby imposing upon God any obligation, putting God in his debt, is absurd as far as Paul is concerned. This absurd suggestion that man's relationship to God could be grounded in works is then contrasted in verse 5 with another kind of relationship, a relationship grounded in grace. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is, for Paul, the logical alternative to the absurdity of verse 4. If man, according to verse 4, cannot relate to God on the basis of debt, then it must be that he relates to God on the basis of grace. If justification cannot come through works, then the only alternative is that it can come through faith. Moo comments that the implicit theologic of Paul is clear. Since work means the reward is given by obligation, the reward of righteousness must not be dependent upon work. For God is never obliged by his creatures. Justification is a gift freely bestowed, not a wage justly earned. Now, what this means for you and I this morning is that we need to choose what kind of relationship with God we're going to have. Are you going to relate to God as an employer on the basis of works in order to put God under obligation to put him in your debt so that he must accept your labor and let you into heaven? Is that the kind of approach that you're going to have to God? According to Paul, that approach is a dead end because God will be in no man's debt. No one can boast before God. If you would be justified then, you must relate to God not as an employer, but as a little child. Coming to Him with nothing to offer, claiming no obligation, holding no timesheet of your labors, coming to Him simply because you believe, you hope that He is merciful and kind. 
When my kids come to me, when they come to sit on my lap, they don't say, hey, I went and I cleaned the kitchen. Can I cuddle with you now? They come because they believe that I have mercy and grace toward them as a father to a child. As long as John Wesley thought that his justification rested in whole or in part upon his religious efforts, upon his rigorous disciplines, his prayers, his fasting, his Bible reading, his meditations, his preaching, his care for the poor, his mission efforts in Georgia, and all the rest, he remained unjustified. Outside of the kingdom of God, a child of God's wrath. It was only when he heard the gospel of justification by faith alone and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit enabled him to rest by faith in the finished work of Christ that justification came and with it all of the joy and the peace and the confidence and the assurance that he had never known before. Abraham was justified by believing a promise. God was making a covenant with him, and God was going to give him an innumerable company of descendants who would come from his own aged body. David was justified by believing a promise that God would be merciful to forgive his lawless deeds, to cover over his sins, to not count his trespasses against him. Likewise, you may be justified simply by believing a promise. And what promise is that? Here it is. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. If you will believe that God is so unbelievably merciful and unbelievably kind and unbelievably righteous so as to justify the ungodly through the justifying death of Jesus Christ, you too will be counted righteous. Not according to your works, but just by believing that promise. If you will believe that God is a God who justifies the ungodly, like you, by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the blood and the righteousness of Christ alone, God will stamp righteous over the ledger of your life and you will be accepted in His sight, adopted as His child, and receive the everlasting inheritance which He promised to Abraham. Romans 4 says unequivocally that if you would be right with God, you must not work. There is a no help wanted sign hanging over the door of heaven. God neither needs nor wants your help. Acts 17.24 The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Mark 10.45 The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the realm of justification, you don't serve Christ. You are served by Christ. So John Piper writes, Our God will not be put in the position of an employer who must depend on others to make his business go. Instead, he magnifies his all-sufficiency by doing the work himself. 
Man is the dependent partner in this affair. The gospel is not a help-wanted ad. It is a help-available ad. So hanging on the door of heaven is a no-help-wanted sign. And right below it is a help-available sign. There is mercy, rich and free. There is grace, abundant and overflowing. There is righteousness and forgiveness for all who will come. And all you must do is not work, but believe in Him who justifies the ungodly. 